So hi, this is Obi again, and we do not have any sponsors, but I'm excited for the uh, second season. And like I said, on this second season, we're going to expand what kind of some of the issues that we've talked about. In this episode, we're going to do that. So more on that later. But first, I want to use this time as we did last time to shout out a charity that I'm involved with, and that's Big Brothers and Big Sisters. Many people know that I was a little in this charity and it's had a huge impact on my life. Literally, one of the reasons why I work in government is because of a connection that a, a big brother of mine had. And so that charity does so much for kids. But what it really does is it shows kids what it feels like to be poured into. And then those kids in turn pour into other people as they become adults like myself. And so wanted to shout out Big Brothers Big Sisters. We'll leave a link in the show notes about how you can donate to that charity But thank you so much for listening to Why You Should Care. Time for the show. Welcome to the 15th episode of Why You Should Care. Every episode, we take a look at a political issue, and hopefully by the end, you'll know why you should care and what you can do about it. I'm your co-host, Obi Umina. I'm a lawyer, political consultant, raised right here in Jacksonville, Florida. My firm provides political consulting for local and statewide candidates. And currently we've provided our services to several elected officials and many winning issue campaigns. I just finished serving as a North Florida political director for Joe Biden's campaign in Florida, where we turned Duval Blue for the first time in 24 years. Local politics is my business, but what if it isn't? This podcast is designed for you. And one more housekeeping item. Unlike my co-host, I am not a journalist. I'm a political consultant who works on Democratic campaigns and candidates. So this podcast may have some bias. So do your own research, but you'll probably find out that I was right. But don't bother me about being biased. So I'm super excited for this episode. As I said early on, we were going to reach and do some different topics instead of just local Jacksonville topics, but still that affect Jacksonville. And so we're going to talk everything Georgia Senate races. And I'm extremely excited about our guest this week is Tia Tia Mitchell from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. She is their Washington correspondent, which means she basically reports on what happens in Washington and is affecting people in Atlanta and Georgia. But before that, she worked for the Florida Times Union. So she is Duval Associated. And so we're glad to have her on the show. Tia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me, Obi. And I definitely represent Duval People all the time, actually, even people in Jacksonville think I'm from Jacksonville. Yeah, we you. <laughs> definitely. And I consider Jacksonville my adopted home, my second home, second to my hometown, which is actually Louisville, Kentucky, for those who don't know. But yes, Jacksonville is also home. So, Tia, we wanted to like, since you are now working in Georgia, but you used to work here, I wanted to kind of do a, a little game, pick one of Georgia versus Florida and see where you land on that. See how much you've been converted over to Georgia. So we'll, let's let's start. So the first one is actually going to do the animals, not the football teams. I'm not going to get you in trouble. So gators or bulldog, which animal pick one? So if we're talking about the animal, mm-hmm. I say bulldog because I'm not letting a gator into my house, but I'll cuddle up with a cute bulldog. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. All right, oranges or peaches? Once again, Peaches, they're just delicious. Oh, man. I think I know how you're going to answer this one. 
FAMU or Spellhouse? And Spellhouse is Spellman and, and Morehouse for those of you that don't know that. And there is no comparison. This question does not even deserve an answer because it is fam you all the way. And do you have any connection with fam you, Tia? Of course. I'm a proud <laughs> Rattler, proud, proud graduate of the Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, October 3rd, 1887. What? Shout out to my FAMU people that are listening to the podcast. All my FAMU friends, I, I respect y'all and love y'all. So shout out to you guys. And Okay, so the final one, which I feel like is the hardest of the questions, which song, Lip Biting Animal or Nuck If You Buck? Although, you know, me being in a sorority, we love a good Nuck If You Buck stroll. However, mm-hmm. you can't, that lip biting animal, that Miami, that Florida ride out, can't beat that. And especially, you know, R.I.P. So, because um, what's his yeah. name? What's his name? Uh, uh, I, now now you have you take, take right. away my Florida rap card. Yeah. Right. That's what I was thinking. I was like, I said, all right, Bizzle, Bizzle. Yes, R.I.P. Yes, yes. But yes, lip biting animal. I think that's the toughest one, but I think as a Florida person, I'm going to have to go with that as well. So, no, let's get into this. And like we said earlier in the show, you worked in Georgia and you've worked in Florida. What? And now you work in D.C. What has kind of been that biggest difference between covering politicians in, in these different areas? So my biggest shock was when I moved from Florida to Georgia because I had spent my entire career in Florida. And so I... There's no way to prepare for how differently the states operate, you know, and it's not the sunshine laws, of course, are much different. We know Florida has like the broadest and most open sunshine laws, which is something great for Florida. And so getting just real quickly, sunshine laws are basically public access laws to right to meetings, records, like stuff that they can get away with in Georgia would be like illegal in Florida, the elected officials in Florida wouldn't even try it. And in Georgia, they do stuff like the legislature in Georgia meets without agendas in advance regularly. Like the committee meetings, the agenda will literally say this committee is meeting at Monday at two agenda at the pleasure of the chair. That's the agenda. There are no bills listed. And then when they get there, they've got all these bills not only to be discussed that day, but voted upon. So not only the members don't even know sometimes what bills are coming up, let alone the public. And that just wouldn't happen in Florida. So there was a big shock, of course, coming from Florida, where I had spent almost 20 years building up my career. Then I landed in Georgia and they're all like, little girl, you don't know anything about us and we don't know you. And so, you know, I had to start from scratch building up, you know, rapport and sources and a reputation as somebody who knows what they're talking about. So. And then now in Washington, it's different. Again, you know, even Florida's legislature is run different than Georgia's General Assembly. And then Congress is a whole new beast. They have all these rules, all these traditions, all these like things that are done just because they've always been done that way. And so that's been a lot to learn. And of course, new people I was telling I was on a different podcast last week. And I was telling them, I kind of know Florida delegation more than I know Georgia delegation. Well, yeah, you other- work with them so long, yeah. right? Yeah. Yesterday, I ran into Sheriff Rutherford and I was like, excuse me, Congressman Rutherford, <laughs> yeah. and, and he, you know, and stuff like that. So 
you know, Governor Scott, stuff like that. So it's really a lot of fun. And especially now that coronavirus, things are even more different up here. So still a lot for me to learn. So like one of the things about Florida Sunshine Law is that, you know, they can't meet privately to discuss bills. Is that the same in Georgia as well? Or does that not apply? Or is that kind of not as... So it's... I mean, so even in Florida, the legislature gets around that all the time. Right, right, right. And so in some ways, even though that's kind of the law in Florida, at the state level, it's not as established as what you can't do as it is in the local level. Got it. That being said, in Georgia, it's not so much them meeting in private, because I still think that's like against the law in Georgia. It's just there's more gray area and less teeth to their sunshine laws. So when they do things that folks can question, like I covered, it's a long story, but basically a county, some county commissioners gave themselves a big pay raise and it was not done in a way that was in accordance to the Georgia sunshine laws. And it went all the way up to the Georgia Supreme Court said, you know, actually, you're right. Now, that took months for the Supreme Court to weigh in. But the Supreme Court said, you're right. They shouldn't have done it. Nothing has happened to them, though. It's like <laughs> they like, still got their raise. Don't do that. But you shouldn't have do done that. Yeah. yeah, it was like you shouldn't have done that. And I mean, yeah. every less level, as soon as it happened, like the attorney general and the solicitor general, which is kind of Georgia also has like a lot of courts and bureaucracy at the criminal justice system. So you have like a probate court, a felony court, a traffic court, all these different courts. Anyways. The Solicitor General's like, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. The Attorney General's like, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. The Supreme Court said, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. But nothing but, happened. Nope. <laughs> All right. Well, good. No, but I like that because it is, I do complain about Florida, Sunshine Law and, and politicians. And now I'm realizing that maybe I shouldn't be complaining because I have it much better here than other places. Right? I mean, it's still, you can still complain, but just right. know it can, it can get worse. It can be gotcha. much worse. Got you. Got you. So let's get into this Georgia Senate cases. And so why should people in Jacksonville, people listen to this process, why should they care about these Georgia uh, Senate races? Well, the first thing is I'm sure because Jacksonville market seeps into Georgia, you guys are seeing the campaign ads mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you should care because you want these people to get off your TV and to see something else. <laughs> um, but on a more serious note, yes, this is this race is about Georgia's senators, but it also is about who gets to control set the agenda at the U.S. Senate. Right now, it's Republicans have the majority and therefore Their leader, Mitch McConnell, sets the agenda. He decides what comes up for a vote on the floor. And as that gatekeeper, he can decide what bills get to move, which appointments that need Senate approval get to move. And so that's a lot of power, even if he can't necessarily control the final vote. He controls what gets to come for a vote at any point. And so if Both Democrats win the Georgia races. It'll flip that balance of power to the Democrats because there will be a 50-50 tie. And in the Senate, the vice president breaks the tie, which would be Kamala Harris. And so if and so although the Senate would technically be a tie and the Republicans and Democrats would have to share a lot of the duties the that Senate leader that becomes the gatekeeper would be controlled by Democrats. 
And again, we've established that that person really has a lot of say. And we know President Biden is coming. He's got some cabinet picks. Certain cabinet picks are going to have a harder time getting approved if Republicans are in power. We know Senator President-elect Biden has some agenda items, you know, shoring up the Affordable Care Act, voting rights reforms, criminal justice reforms. So again, if Republicans are in charge, they can keep that stuff from ever getting to the floor, which is something that Mitch McConnell had did during the Obama administration and something he's doing now. You know, Democrats are in charge in the U.S. House under Nancy Pelosi. They've sent a lot of bills to the Senate that the Senate has refused to vote upon, including the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, including some criminal justice reforms and things like that. So and just the thought of gridlock, we always talk about gridlock in Washington. Mm -hmm. Republicans in control in the Senate pretty much guarantees that a level of gridlock will be much more amplified than if Democrats are in control. And again, for some people, they want that. They don't want Democrats to be in control and to Mm -hmm. have such an easy time. And that's kind of the decision that Georgia voters have to make. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because we talked about this a little bit is the differences between the different bodies of legislator and rules. Right. I mean, the rules in the Senate make it very easy for the person that has like a one or two person majority to really run the show. Right. And to really like eliminate kind of and determine pretty much anything that's going to happen in the Senate. And so it's so much more powerful than probably some of the, even the state legislative bodies, the way it's set up. Right. Right. Cause the Senate has the filibuster. We always hear that term that basically is one person can kind of hold up a vote in the Senate, just a single person, because in the Senate for votes to the Senate, like I said, has all these weird rules. Mm-hmm. So the Senate has a rule that you need 60 senators to agree to take something to a vote. Unless you have at least 60 of 100, then the final vote on a bill cannot occur. Right. And so again, it's rarely does either party have a 60 vote majority. And so you always need bipartisan support. And that's, again, where that partisan gridlock in the Senate comes into play. No, I think, and just to simplify it, it's really about, you know, who's going to get to set the agenda going forward. You know, I think is Biden going to get to do everything he wants to do is really going to be determined by this Senate race. And so that's really why this is so important is, you know, if you get elected into office, what you want to do is be able to implement your vision without somebody in the way. And so if the Democrats can't pick up these two seats, it's going to be very difficult for Joe Biden to do all the things he wants to do as president. So let's get into a few more details. So my listeners are a little bit more familiar. You know, everybody voted in November. So, you know, why are we in a runoff right now? Why, what, what's going on with that? Why are we continuing to vote? What's going on in Georgia? So that's something unique to Georgia. I think only Louisiana has similar rules and it's a 50 percent rule for any election at the local and the state level. Pretty much anything except for the presidential election, the winner has to get to 50% of the vote. So in Georgia, there are a lot of elections. For example, if you have a partisan primary, let's say it's a crowded primary with you know four or five Democrats running for a state house seat. 
Well, if none of those Democrats get 50 percent, then there is a runoff to figure out who's going to be the Democratic nominee for that seat. And then it'll go to the general election with the Democrat and and a Republican. And perhaps there's a third party candidate or a write-in candidate or a nonpartisan independent candidate. Well, in that general election, if nobody gets the 50 percent of the vote, it goes to a runoff. And that's what we have now in Georgia. We have two very different Senate races and we can get into why they're different. But both of those races, nobody got to 50 percent. And so both of those races are now in a runoff. As a consultant, that is like that is terrifying because it you like you literally have like, you know, election. Then like you, you could have another election, you know, like it's it's like four or five elections just to get one seat. That's has to be wild to a lot of the candidates as well. Right. I mean, it's it's not normal here. So, yeah, there are some voters in DeKalb County, which is a suburb of Atlanta. They had you know, primaries and runoffs from the primary. They had a special election for John Lewis's seat and a runoff for the special election to John Lewis's seat. They had the general election and now they have this runoff. And that's why turnout has been such an issue, particularly for Democrats, because it's hard to get people to keep coming back. And like I said, there's potentially voters in DeKalb County, Georgia, who've had to vote like six times, you know, since June. And then the presidential primary would be number seven. That's a different ballot. It's tough. It's going to be tough. Turnout's going to be tough on these second elections. You know, typical to Duval, we have that that second election for our local seats. And the turnout for that is always lower. It's hard to get people back to the polls. And people don't talk about this enough, but you know, some people voting is an inconvenience. Like you have kids, you have a job, like trying to get off and find time to work. It can be inconvenience and having to vote four or five times for the same thing could be a problem. So another thing that's unique about this Georgia race is that there's two Senate races at the same time. And that's not normal, at least in Florida, they're spread out. Why is that? And how did we get these matchups? How did we get these particular matchups here? So it's not normal for Georgia either. The, you know, each state has two U.S. senators and they're staggered so that every there's a senator on the ballot. And then two years later, the other senator is on the ballot. And then two years later, neither senator is on the ballot. And then it repeats because senators are on six year cycles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is what normally occurs even in Georgia. But what happened is we had a senator, Johnny Isaacson, who was getting older. He had some health ailments and he decided to retire before the end of his term. And so the first thing that happened is the governor appointed someone to fill his seat immediately. In the House, the governor would have to do a special election, like we mentioned, for John Lewis's seat. But for U.S. Senate, governors can appoint a replacement on a temporary status, which is what happened with Johnny Isaacson. It's the same thing that the California governor is going to have to do for Kamala Harris for her seat. So Kelly Leffler is who was appointed for Isaacson's Senate seat. But then there also was a special election because she was only appointed for a temporary until the special election could be held. And so the interesting thing about Georgia election law is that special election was similar to what we have in Jacksonville, which is those winner-take-all non... It's not that it was nonpartisan, but there wasn't a partisan primary. Everyone was on the same ballot, and you voted for the one person you like 
And then the top two, because no one person got to 50%, the top two went to a runoff, which is very similar to what happens in Jacksonville. So that's that seat. And whoever wins is going to have to run again in two years when that normal six-year cycle comes up again. So that's the Kelly Loeffler and Reverend Warnock seat, correct? Yes, that's the Leffler, Raphael, Kelly Leffler versus Raphael Warnock. So again, they're only running for a two-year term to finish Senator Isaacson's term. And then there will be another election in 2022 for a full six-year term. And so the other one that is on the schedule now, the David Perdue, John Oss, well, how do you like possess his last Ossoff. name? Ossoff. Mm-hmm. Is, is on the regular schedule. And that's exactly. why. Got it. Got it. And that's one was just a normal. There was a, a primary and there were Democrats versus Republicans. And then there was a general election. There was Ossoff was a Democrat. Purdue was the Republican. And then there was a libertarian candidate. And so that's why that libertarian candidate got enough votes to kind of keep Push either Ossoff or Purdue came close. He had like 49.4%. But because neither he nor Ossoff got the 50%, but they were the top two, it went to a runoff. So that's that's how we got to where we're at now, which is, I'm glad you explained that because I, like, I, I don't think a lot of people kind of understood why we're here. And so I wanted to make sure we explained that. So you've been covering this race for a while. And normally with races, especially statewide races, there's some themes that have emerged in a race like this, what are some of the themes that you are seeing as a journalist that have emerged on either race or either side? There are themes. So there are themes. Warnock and Ossoff are kind of running as a ticket. Leffler mm-hmm. and Purdue are kind of running as a ticket. They've combined resources. They campaign together and things like that. And so the Democrats have, again, focused on we want to champion progressive issues, liberal issues that have been stymied in the Senate under leader Mitch McConnell. They've talked about wanting to make sure that they help President Biden uh, implement his agenda. Again, knowing that if Republicans control the Senate, that will be much harder. Those are the main themes that the Democrats are championing. And then the Republicans are saying, we want to keep Biden from dismantling President Trump's the things that President Trump has done. And we know that that will happen under Democratic control. We are a firewall that keeps Republicans in control of the Senate and therefore keeps President Trump's legacy from being dismantled. And then, of course, you have attacks from coming from the other side. So the Republicans have tried to paint Warnock and and, and Ossoff as like radical socialists Mm -hmm. who want to implement this really crazy doomsday agenda that isn't really rooted in their platforms or quite frankly, the platforms of any of the Democratic leaders. And then on the other side, you have Ossoff and Warnock painting the Republicans as like, they're both very rich. Both Purdue and Kelly Leffler are very rich. Richer than Shad Khan, if that helps put it in perspective. Yeah, they're Uh, very rich. They're very, Kelly Leffler and her husband are worth half a billion dollars. Her husband owns the company that now owns the New York Stock Exchange. They own the stock exchange. Right. And then David Perdue also has a lot of money. He used to be CEO of Reebok. He used to be CEO of, I get it mixed up. I think he was CEO of Family Dollar. I get Dollar General and Family Dollar mixed up, but he was CEO of one of those. And so he's got a lot of money too. And so, 
they've been kind of Democrats have said, you know, they're out of touch. They're rich. They've been focused more on their money and trading stock than on helping regular people. So those are the themes. Now, that being said, this race is not about any of those themes. This race is about turnout. Are Democrats going to get more people to vote for their candidate or Republicans going to get more people to vote for their candidate? It's not so much about the messaging at this point. It's really a game of turnout and getting your voters to show back up. And it's early voting has started, right? Early voting has started in Georgia at this point by the time. And the election is on the 5th, I believe, right? Yes. January 5th is the final day of the election. Early voting started on Monday, December 14th. And of course, there's also very robust absentee voting by mail. So one of the things that I was seeing, too, is is and you mentioned this a little bit about the trading stocks, you know, both the Democrats have really tried to hit Kelly Loeffler, Senator Loeffler and Senator Perdue about kind of some of the tax, some of the coronavirus tax moves that allegedly happened based off of what people saw. How do you think those are impacting? Are those impacting people, voters, or is it kind of a lost issue? So again, I think it Democrats are critical of Leffler and Purdue. Republicans, less so. So again, it's resonating if you already, you know, if you already weren't that keen on them, then of course it's resonating. I don't know if it's changing a lot of people's mind. First of all, there aren't a lot of minds to change in Georgia. Five million people voted in the general election. Yes, Democrats have successfully led voter registration drives. There are about 75,000 new voters that registered just since the general election. Democrats are working really hard for turnout. But again, they're not working to change minds. They're working to turn out people who maybe didn't vote or weren't registered to vote or are newly eligible because maybe they just turned 18. Yeah. And I think that's a good point, too, because when we talk about campaigns, when I'm running a campaign, we talk about them in different phases. One of those phases is what we call persuasion. One of those phases is called GOTV, where we're just turning out. We have left the persuasion stage of a campaign, especially in a runoff. You're not really converting anybody. You know, there's a few libertarian votes that may be out there, right? But they're, you're really not converting new people. So you're leaving the persuasion part and you're really into the turnout part. And that's where we're at in this race as well. And one of those things that turn people out are TV ads, right? Like TV ads are one of the biggest ways to turn people out. We in North Florida, we get some of those TV ads and they've been, I would definitely say they're very different, the different types of ads. And so what has been the mood on the ground with the ads? Has there been any response? I know you talk to voters as well. What has been the mood? I mean, obviously the ads on both sides are cutting I will say, you know, and this uh, it may be biased, but I, the Republican ads seem to feel more fear mongering. The Democratic ads kind of are attacking, but not in the same way. But what has been the response that you've seen to the ads? I know people are tired of them. Yeah, people are tired of them. There also are a lot of mailers in Georgia, people saying wow. they never got so much mail, a lot of ads. So, again, I do think that what's been interesting as far as the ads are is the tone of Reverend Warnock's ads and him working hard to like paint himself as like the benevolent black man. Mm-hmm. And so he's literally Walking having his puppy. Yeah. Like a, not just a dog, but like a cute little beagle, you know, it's very intentional. And he speaks and, and don't get me wrong. He is a benevolent pastor. Like I'm not right, trying to say right, he's pretending, right. 
But, you know, what messaging they're projecting, especially in response to Purdue and Leffler making him sound like this radical communist. Well, I think what happens in these type of in these type of races is like instead of having ads that are talking about issues, you're having ads that are talking about the person and their personality on both sides. Right. And so you're not talking about healthcare. You're talking about, hey, I'm not this person that they're saying I am. Look, I'm a normal person. I have a dog. And those are different types of kind of motivations for the ads that you're seeing, right? He's basically defending himself against, I don't want to say personal attacks because it's politics, but it is, you know, it's it's a it's an attack on kind of some of his speeches and some of his sermons, right? But it's more about a personal attack as opposed to like he's wrong on these issues, right? I mean, I think that's what he's doing with his ad so far. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that you asked about people on the ground. It helps reinforce some of the messaging on both sides, which again is part of turnout. Like Democrats are really pushing home the messaging that like, look how well, both of the sides are saying, look how crazy the other side is. Look how much they lie. Look how much they misrepresent the truth. Is this who you want in Washington? Is this who you want in power? Right. And so that's what the ads are serving to reinforce that message, even though they do it in different ways. But I think by and large, people in Georgia are like, vote and get it over with. Especially, you know, people are voting early, but they're still getting the text. I get texts. I'm not even a Georgia voter anymore, you know, but I was once. Somebody has an old list. They're texting me or whatever. And I'm, you know, Clean so it's up like, your list, by the way, that's a PSA. Clean your list up. Don't put old voters on the list. It doesn't help anybody else. Out. It doesn't help anyone. And it's not fraud because nobody, you know, I'm not voting. It's only right. fraud if I were to vote. But right. someone sending me a text message encouraging me to vote is not fraud. Right. It just means they have an old list. But that doesn't stop even if you early voted or cast your absentee ballot. You're getting it until January 5th. And there's been this, I can sense this, people are like the all the attention too. they don't like all the attention on the Georgia race, all of the people coming in from all over now, they're over it, right? I mean, because I know in Florida, you know, I was tired that November 3rd, like, I don't, it was almost like, I don't care. Like I'm done. And you don't have that in Georgia. You got another month of it, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, Democrats and Republicans, even though Democrats are doing more face-to-face than they did in the general election, they're still campaigning much differently than Republicans. You know, you have Donald Trump will fly in and speak to 5,000 people standing shoulder to shoulder um, with no masks required and very few masks seen. Whereas Joe Biden comes in, he he did campaign, but it was not publicly announced. It was drive-in, socially distanced, mass required, a much smaller crowd. And so in many ways, the Democrats, I think the Democrats have more like the celebrities, you know, like Jeezy performed before I saw uh, that. I saw that. Joe Biden and uh, Common, you know, they have all, you know, the Broadway stars did the whole rendition of Georgia on my mind. And, you know, they have a lot of star power, but they don't have the big, huge events that really get folks energized. Mm-hmm. And that's just really honestly, you know, a difference in, in how the campaign was run even before this runoff. It was the same way, you know, we were the the Biden campaign internally was even stricter than it was externally about what we were trying to do 
with COVID because we just didn't want anybody to get it. Like we didn't, we didn't want anybody to get it. And so I'm glad that they're continuing to do kind of those drive-in rallies, which are a little bit safer than, you know, that together, but it is, it does affect turnout. Like if you can knock on people's doors or have big rallies and energize people, it does affect turnout. So I hope that it's going to be rare as somebody who studies these things for a, a runoff to get anywhere close to the same amount of turnout as the general election. But I hope that, you know, I don't know what they're predicting for turnout in this race, but I hope it's a decent one. Right. I mean, well, right now, early voting turnout is actually surpassing the general wow. election. Wow. Uh, now, again, that's partially because people are early voting that maybe aren't doing as much uh, mail-in voting as they did during the general election. And of course, we don't think the final number is going to surpass the general election because that in and of itself was a very high turnout. But it's going to break records for a runoff in Georgia. And the question is, you know, what is going to be that partisan split? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the case. Like, turnout is going to be big. We got to talk about the debate, though, Uh, the, the one debate that happened And so we'll talk about them separate, the two races separately. So the first one, it's pretty easy to talk about because Senator Perdue decided not to show up, correct? Yes. And that, you know, there are a lot of reasons why. But the main reason is when they debated before the general election, Purdue did not perform well. They had a debate that was in Savannah. They debated twice before the general election, but there was a debate in Savannah And Ossoff just kind of, he got in a whole rift on Purdue, called him a crook, called him a lot of things. And Purdue just kind of got stunned into silence. And so um, Ossoff got this really long soundbite that like viral. It was, you know, it was it was a knockout as far as that debate was concerned. And so I think David Perdue didn't see much upside. Like, why debate him again? Why give him a chance to throw more singers? You know, it's different. The Purdue Ossoff race is different than the Leffler Warnock race in that Purdue and Ossoff both are somewhat known entities. Purdue's mm-hmm. been a senator for six years. Ossoff ran for Congress three years ago. So both of them kind of have introduced themselves to voters in ways that neither Leffler nor Warnock have. Remember, Leffler just became a senator in January Mm -hmm. and she had to like during the general election, during the runoff to the special election, which was on the general election ballot. She had other Republicans running against her who were saying that she wasn't conservative enough. She wasn't loyal to Trump enough. She's a Republican in name only. So she does. She's not even from Georgia, right? From Georgia. She's not really one of us. Look how rich she is. So she does need to kind of like continue to get herself out there and, you know, convey to conservative voters in particular that she's someone they should support. And then Warnock has also never run for office before. So it behooves him to get out there. And again, he has to shrug off the scary black man, crazy, radical communist preacher thing that Republicans are trying to paint of them. So both of them are served well by participating in the debate. So a little bit of of debate strategy. One of the things, too, like we tell candidates, I mean, if you're an incumbent, you don't want to give someone a bunch of debates because all it can do is basically 
find holes to make you look worse. But also, if you're an incumbent, you most of the time you have the edge in money. Most of the time you have the edge in platform. You don't want to give them more of a platform uh, as well. So, you know, normally as an incumbent like Purdue is not going to agree to a bunch of debates. It's just not the way it is. The guy that's coming in will ask for five or six debates. They'll normally say one or two. But what also has changed in debates is debates used to be more about back and forth. And it's now about sound bites, right? It's more about what is going to be edited and clipped out after your debate. Because more people before, when the debate was on, was the only time you could watch the debate, right? Like now with social media, you can record clips and put out sound bites and video clips from your debate, which are going to see far more reach than the, the people that watched that Georgia debate. Because I didn't watch the Georgia debate, but I saw clip a lot because of the debate. And so, you know, what you have in these, and that's changing how people are going into these debates. So for example, and we can we can get into this other race, it was very clear that in the debate that did happen, you know, they weren't really talking to each other. They were talking like past each other, even to the point where like Senator Leffler kept repeating radical rap, you know, over and over. Right. I mean, I said on Twitter, she sounded like she was on Westworld, like the way she was like robotically kind of continuing to say that was because she wanted to make sure that issue was beaten into the people that were watching. Right. I mean, I think it's a different type of debate than you even had maybe 10 years ago. You know, it's just it's just different purposes. Yeah. And now, you know, me coming from the journalist side, it frustrates me because our democracy We have a republic. We elect people to represent us at the different levels of government. And people, the voters, can't make an informed choice if they can't hear from those candidates about what they want to do and how they think and what their priorities would be in office if those candidates refuse to engage. And so and then therefore they can't make an informed decision. Right. And right now what can and I get it from a political standpoint, they go straight to social media and they control their message. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that allows them to spin and avoid answering direct questions or avoid tough questions in ways that participating in a debate, sitting before an editorial board, speaking to your local media, that you can't get away from it if you do those things. And too many candidates now just don't do it. And let me, we ain't talking about the Senate, but you got a problem in Jacksonville too, because Mayor Mm -hmm. Curry is the same way. Mm -hmm. And it is a disservice to constituents. And it's a disservice during the election, but it's also a disservice once these people get elected and don't engage and ask the questions so you can hold them accountable. That's how our democracy works. I I am a hundred percent like, a hundred percent agree. And just to jump on my little soapbox for a little bit. I mean, to me, I, I think we put the way we've changed things now, there's obviously too much emphasis on debates. Debates show you who the better debater is. What we need to show is where the actual policy differences are. Right. And I think that's not, I don't know if we're ever going to go back to that because of the, the, the prevalence of social media. There's just a lack of people wanting to be, on camera with a viewpoint. It's much easier to not be on camera with a viewpoint than it is to be on camera saying, I believe in something. And then a year or two later, they can pull that, that clip up and hurt you. Right. But 
you don't know necessarily the differences in their opinion on policies because debates don't provide that anymore. And that's that is kind of a shame to me, I, I believe. And I think the better debates do. But, you know, that relies a lot on the journalists and the rules in place and yeah. candidates decision to abide by the rules. You know, we saw the best and worst of what debates can be, I think, during the presidential election. You know, that mm-hmm. first debate was really terrible. But the debate with Kristen Welker was pretty good, you know, right, right. Um, and it, it it's not easy as a journalist. I, I haven't moderated a debate yet, you know, one day, but I've been like part of the panel of journalists asking questions. And we work really hard to like come up with good probing questions. But that also still relies on the candidates to play by the rules and answer the question. And what we saw in the Leffler and, and um, Warnock debate was too often both candidates didn't really answer the questions. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, I, I don't know, I actually kind of feel, I, I you know, I, I don't know if that's ever going to change. You know, I think that's, and I'll be honest, it's, it's a little bit of a shame because I think what people want from those debates is what you got, what journalists offer, right. Is the ability to say, man, did they answer that tough question really hard? You know, like, the thing I love about debates on a candidate on the political side is the other side is going to create a narrative for you. Right. And what you hope in a debate is that the journalist is going to ask you a question about this created narrative and you can basically punch it in the face and basically say, well, this is what they've been saying, but this is the actual truth. That is like, to me, the, the biggest victory you can get in the debate because they're running all these ads about you, about Raphael being radical they get to see that, man, he doesn't sound radical, right? He doesn't look radical. He doesn't, he's not matching what I'm seeing, right? And that's powerful in the debate. But this this opportunity to really interchange ideas, this Lincoln-Douglas debate that, you know, that you were taught about in school, that's not really coming back, at least I don't see. Real quickly, what did you think about, I mean, obviously uh, Purdue didn't show up to the debate, the picture of him, of uh, also kind of by the empty, there's an empty debate podium, which, and I'm not involved in Georgia, but a lot of times they don't do that, but they decided to do the empty podium. Do you have any like kind of information on why they did that or how, how that came about? Well, so the Atlanta press club who did that debate and it was on CNN, but it was the Atlanta press club debate. They are like the go-to debate. If you're a serious candidate for like a big statewide office or federal office, if you don't do any debates, you do the Atlanta Press Club debate in Georgia. And so, and, and he's not the first person to skip the debate by any means. But I think the Atlanta Press Club, again, wanted to send a message that like we've offered. And this is, in it, and I think it would be, it, it might've been a different decision if there were other debates for this runoff that Purdue had agreed to. But I think, again, because he agreed to none, they wanted to send the message that, like, again, this is an empty chair showing Purdue not showing up to be accountable for where he stands. And so I don't have a problem with it. And they also did leave the He could have showed up that day and participated. So I think that also was them demonstrating, like, it's not us. It's him. Our invitation was open and it's been open. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's all about I mean, everybody has to make decisions. Clearly, I don't think it's going to hurt him with Republicans. I do think it does help. 
I feel like Democrats are more motivated by things like that, and that will help the base a little bit. But I don't know if it's going to – I mean, I don't know how many undecided – there aren't many undecided voters out there because they voted the first time, right? So I don't know if that's going to necessarily sway somebody that was a Purdue fan to go vote for Ossoff. It's just one of those things that both sides kind of use to their benefit, I guess. Right. I agree. I think it didn't change any minds. It just is what it is. So I don't like to ask because you're a journalist and I don't want to ask you to predict who's going to win. But what to you is going to be the biggest predictor of like if you see this one thing, like maybe a precinct or something like that. But if you see one thing, that's going to be the indicator of like who's going to win the race. I think turnout. If by election day, you know, Georgia can't say who voted, but they can tell you the number of people who voted, how many were registered Democrats, how many, you know what I mean? They can't tell you which individual, how these people voted, but they can give demographics. If by election day, Democratic turnout is way outpacing Republicans, if Black turnout, Latino turnout, young voter turnout is way, Asian American, Pacific Islander turnout is way outpacing white voters, and not outpacing because white voters are in the majority, but like demographically is off pace than white voters or demographically off pace um, compared to older voters. I think those things bode well for Democrats. And then conversely, if Republicans are really showing up in good numbers, if white voters and older voters are showing up in good numbers, if there's good turnout in rural areas um, compared to Metro Atlanta, those things will all bode well for the Republicans. So really, if people are looking, especially on the Dem side, like if they should be looking at like Atlanta turnout, right? Because that's where, or your, your county you used DeKalb. to. Yeah. So Atlanta suburbs. So yeah. you have Fulton County, which is mostly Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And then right outside of Fulton County, like circling Fulton County, you have Cobb, Gwinnett, DeKalb, Clayton, Douglas County, Cobb County. Now, if those counties have really good turnout, those six or seven counties I just mentioned are almost half the population of Georgia because, you know, Atlanta is that one major city in Georgia. That's different from Florida as well. Florida, you know, even Miami really can't control Florida politics just in and of itself. Because you've got all these other population centers that can flex their muscle. Georgia's different in that way. There's one major population center and then everything else. So when the map show comes on, that's what my nephew calls it. When the map show comes on, we should be looking at the Atlanta suburbs, those counties there, because that's going to show us if we're getting the kind of turnout that, well, at least Dems would need to, to show up as opposed to like some of the other rural counties as well. Right. Yeah. And and not just turnout, but what turnout in those suburbs and what we now call the exurbs, that rung, that's one more rung outside. Those counties that have historically been pretty conservative are starting to become more purple. And again, if 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 we look at those Atlanta suburbs and Atlanta exurbs and the demographics of the voters that showed up, from those population centers look like those are people that would support Democratic candidates versus Republican candidates. That's what we're looking for. 
One more question for you. And I didn't, I thought about this. It just popped into my head. I think we would be remiss about talking about Georgia politics without talking about Stacey Abrams a little bit. You as a, a journalist observer, she came to Jacksonville. I staffed her when she came. She was amazing when she came to Jacksonville. But just talk a little bit about her impact on these elections and, and what you've seen from that. So Stacey Abrams is a really dynamic figure. Um, I covered her when she ran for governor. I followed her around Georgia for two weeks and then covered kind of the aftermath of the voting and her decision to contest the vote and then ultimately to concede that she did not win without conceding the election. Mm -hmm. So she accepted she did not win. She did not concede. And so, and, and since then, you know, periodically I get to interview her or cover her at events and she is very dynamic, but it also cannot be understated that she also is very strategic. She is, you know, she didn't do it alone, but she has beaten the drum about how Democrats can win statewide in Georgia. And we have to remember that unlike Florida, Democrats had not been winning statewide in Georgia. You know, Obama had carried Florida. You know, Bill Nelson was winning statewide in Florida until mm -hmm. recently. It's just in the recent, what, six or eight years that Florida's really become more red. And it was purple before then. Well, Georgia has been considered red since the, the late 90s. You know, when Bill Clinton won the presidential, he was the last president. He won in 92. In 96, he did not carry Georgia. That that change was starting to occur and then by the late 90s, they were no longer electing Democratic governors. And so that's 20 years, 20, almost 30 years. Mm -hmm. But it, well, yeah, about 20 years of Republicans controlling state, you know, gaining control of all branches of state government. And right now there are no statewide Democrats elected in Georgia. And so she came up with the, you know, her and other strategists that work with her said, here's how we can do it. And it's about not running away from progressive or liberal issues. It's about engaging every voter. Um, it's about running statewide. Georgia has 159 counties, 159. She went to all of them. She used to go to four and five a day. So these are very rural counties in a lot of right, places. Right. And she still said, I'm going to show up, but I'm not going I'm going to show up still talking about Medicaid expansion and living wages and criminal justice reform. And I think that's a playbook. You know, Democrats struggled in other states. That was not the case in Georgia. You know, we the only seat to flip from red to blue was in Georgia, the congressional seat. The only congressional seat that Democrats picked up this cycle was in Georgia. And that was Carolyn Bordeaux. She's a white woman, but she was in a very diverse district in suburban Atlanta. And she ran on very liberal issues in a district that is now predominantly Hispanic, Asian and black. But mm -hmm. this is a district that had been controlled by Republicans. Um, demographics have shifted very quickly. I'll say over the past decade or so, the demographics have shifted in that. My point is, in Georgia, they're kind of Stacey Abrams is leading statewide Democrats in like questioning the playbook. And I think now nationally, Democrats are questioning that playbook. And you have people like Representative Ocasio-Cortez, AOC in New York, who also have said, you know, trying to appeal to like people in the center and being moderate, that's not always how you win. And you can win 
by championing progressive causes, but that's a different way of thinking. Now that's Republicans have dug in on for better or for worse, Republicans did not shy away from some of the more extreme elements of their party. The more extreme elements of the Republican Party are steeped in racism, xenophobia, homophobia. And I'm not saying every Republican thinks that way. I'm saying those are the most extreme elements of their party. But well, they do not run ad, from Yeah. And if you look at their ads, their ads play to those, right? Right. They do not run from those extremist yeah. elements because they realize that those people who have those extreme views vote. And if they agree with you, they'll vote for you, which is why Leffler and Purdue are not running away from those things. Why they're not running away from Donald Trump. Right. right. You know, because Trump supporters vote. No, I think, uh, you know, what what Stacey Abrams has done in Georgia over the last, you know, 10 years, honestly, is put in the work. Right. I think what people were seeing is a combination of year round organizing as opposed to just. Right before the election, you're seeing uh, a better infrastructure, but also you're seeing the messaging be consistent and not trying to play middle of the road messaging. You're seeing messaging that is saying, hey, we're progressive. This is what we want. And it's funny because I had the episode before this, I had Professor Professor Binder from UNF. He's the pollster, the UNF pollster. And what we talked about was that a lot of these progressive Ballot initiatives are passing in Florida or passing in other red states. So it's not only really the it's, it's less about the, the message it's more about who's delivering the message. And what Stacey's done or uh, Stacey Abrams has done in Georgia has really just done the work and, and turned it into like a, a you know year round thing. And, you know, I 100 percent agree. I wrote something in January and Florida politics, basically saying something similar that we need to move the party in that direction, because what you see in Florida is, is not that level of infrastructure year round. You see it as a buildup before the campaign and that used to work. But now, as you could see, when you lose Florida by three points, you really need to do something more drastic because that's for Florida, that's a blowout. So but no, thank you for touching on that. You are my resident Stacey Abrams expert at this point. So I, I appreciate you. You know, we, we just couldn't leave Georgia and not talk about her impact. So, Tia, thank you so much for coming on the show. Any final thoughts, any kind of people you need to shout out? Where, where can people find you and follow you and all of that good stuff? I won't do any shout outs because I don't want to get in trouble for who I miss, but I really do. I love Jacksonville. I miss Jacksonville. I slide in every now and then, usually pretty quietly to check on my people in Jacksonville. Um, And it holds a special place in my heart. That's why I do still keep abreast of politics in Jacksonville. I will one shout out. Subscribe to your local newspaper. And subscribe to the Atlanta Journal and read Tia's stuff as well. You need to subscribe to as many papers as possible. Yes. I mean, if if, what your budget allows, but look at Jacksonville. You all would be paying the price of the sale of JEA for not transparent reasons if it weren't for the Times Union. And now that Lot J mess, you better read it. You better make sure you know, and you can hold your elected officials accountable. Now, if you like it, tell your elected officials to go ahead and put a possible four seasons on a parking lot outside of a football stadium. 
Now y'all know have you ever well, a hey, contaminated parking lot? Let's be right. let's let's make sure we got all the <laughs> I am not I am not part I'm hard on Mayor Curry because there are one million residents in Jacksonville who deserve good representation in City Hall. It's not personal to me. But when there are deficiencies strictly from a political or objective standpoint, I say something because it's important to me. And it's important to look at that lot J stuff and say, are there any four seasons that are not in a major metropolitan areas downtown? So why would we think a city that's mid-sized like Jacksonville would get approved for four seasons that's not in the city core? You just have to ask questions. And I know that's off topic. Y'all can tweet me at Tia Reports. I'm also on Facebook at Tia Reports. Just know it's a mix of Florida politics, Georgia politics, and anything else random I want to talk about. And four seasons plotting, right? Like it's a, a it's a four season stand account at this point. Because no, I you know, I did a whole podcast on the lot J. So my views are out there. But I think one of the things, and we've talked about this on the podcast, politicians are gonna make decisions that you like or you don't like. That's just the case. And elections have consequences. I think the thing is always, and I know you think this, especially as a journalist, is the transparency, right? Right. If you're making this decision, why are you doing this? What is the motivation behind it? And and that's that's right. right. Happen, you should right? have to explain it. It's not just about saying, well, we want to build this, but why? Make it make sense. Make the money make sense. Because again, Lot J is... And I've learned all this from the Times Union, but it's a lot of taxpayer dollars. These are this is not just money coming from the sky. This is your money, mm-hmm. your taxpayer money that could go to something else. So it's mm-hmm. also about priorities. It's also about return on investment. And Lot J, if Shad Khan is the multimillionaire that we believe him to be, why does he deserve a handout from the government? And why, if we're giving millionaires handouts from the government, are we also not working on other things like social programs, our school system, they had to beg for that tax. Mm-hmm. You know, Lenny Curry acted like he supported it once it was a foregone conclusion. But remember him and those other folks at City Hall blocked the school board at first from putting that tax on the ballot, you know, but they want to act like people forget. And so I actually had a rant on social media today. There's a member of Congress who said, you know, right now Congress is considering stimulus, um, another round of coronavirus um, stimulus. And there's a member of Congress, his name is Jim Jordan, and he said the best stimulus, a job. And that's a great little quick little bite. But if you know people who are looking for work or struggling to make ends meet, just saying get a job is so tone deaf. There are jobs to get. That's the problem. Or are you you qualified for the job? Or if you're talking about unskilled entry-level job, does that job give you a living wage? Especially if you're a parent and have children. Because if you have children, guess what? You get that job, but now you have a child care bill that's $200 a week. And then some of, I mean, it's not as much as before, but you also had a child and you had to, like, teach them school at the same time. Or if if that job, you know, you say, well, get a good job at Amazon. Jacksonville's public transportation system is not conducive to working at Amazon because if you have to take two buses to and from, that's a two hour bus ride because the buses don't come very frequently in Jacksonville because we haven't invested much in public transportation in Jacksonville. 
And so you've got a two hour bus ride each way. But remember, you still got a child to pick up from child care. And so there are all these nuances that are and I'm not saying there's a these are very complicated issues that face all cities. Mm-hmm. But these are things that Jacksonville could be addressing right, with the right. millions they want to now spend right, on lockdown. Right. And so that it's about priorities and it's about, again, return on investment. And it's about, about people at home understanding what's at stake and what's being left on the table. Jacksonville has a crime issue. Now, mm-hmm. some of that crime is because of the pandemic, because Atlanta's uh, murder rate has gone, homicide rate has gone way up. But we also know Jacksonville's homicide rate has been high for years and years. Lenny Curry said he was going to address it. He helped get Alvin Brown out and he didn't do anything about it. We're not spending money on that at record levels the way they want to spend on Lot J. So it is, it's just about it. It gets me worked up because, again, these are real people and poor people pay taxes, too. Mm-hmm. They probably pay more mm-hmm. you know, as a percentage of their income. Yeah. Because there's still sales, sales tax, tax and all of that. Yep, yep. Is a flat tax. So mm-hmm. a rich person pays the same amount in sales tax for that extra value meal as a poor person. Mm-hmm. And so you know, but so Jacksonville is not always serving the least of these well, and that's why it's so important for people to remain engaged. And that's where local media comes into play. No, I listen. You are right now preaching to the choir, and one of the things that we try to do on this on this podcast is really help people see that connection, right? Like if you spend 250 million here, you could spend 1 million on, on certain programs to help people. What one of the things I always talk about is Jacksonville journey. Jacksonville journey costs 30 million a year, right? This thing is costing us 350 million. You know, we have to do that. And it, it goes back to these Georgia Senate races, right? As well as what are your priorities? Because, one party it wants to do tax cuts. One party wants to do checks. It wants to do you know disbursement checks. And so you need to know like these are things are your vote is connected to these things. And and I think you know I don't think we do a good. And when I say we, I say I, I mean like politicians in general don't do a good job of connecting those dots for people because people are thinking this three hundred fifty million is like a blank check and it's not. It's your money that is going somewhere that's important. And so like you gotta make sure that you're making sure that your vote counts for that. So no, thank you, Tia, for coming on the show. I will give my last word about these Georgia elections and it is everything these Georgia elections are important to Florida because whoever wins is gonna control the Senate for at least two years, if not more. And what's going to happen is either you're going to have someone who's going to be able to roadblock and stop the new administration's progress, or you're going to be able to have an opportunity to have some of those things move through clearly. What I always like to do on this show, if you do want to participate in the Georgia uh, Senate election and you're a Dem, sorry for other people, but if you're a Dem, I will post some links in the show notes about how you can get involved, some links to, to some phone banks and that kind of stuff. Because I think people from Florida, especially from North Florida, already have been going up to Georgia and helping, but there's going to be opportunities. I think it's super important to be engaged. I say this on every episode. Voting is the is the beginning of your of your political responsibility. You need to stay educated and activated and engaged. 
states because that's the only reason you're going to know about things like JA or or county commissioners just randomly raising their pay, right? If you're not engaged with everyday thing, you can't just vote and that's not just the end of it. So thank you so much, Tia, for coming on. Hopefully we're going to have you on again. This was a lot of fun to, to finally kind of get to meet you, even though this is over the internet, but somebody that, who I've been, I've read your stuff forever. I'm a fan. And so it's nice to be able to have, have you on this show and, and talk to your adopted home as well. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me anytime.